On the night before Christmas 1890, the 55-year-old American novelist Mark Twain produced a holiday greeting card handwritten in blue-black ink for the Boston Daily Globe that said, It is my heart warm and world-embracing Christmas hope and aspiration that all of us, the high, the low, the rich, the poor, may eventually be gathered together in a heaven of everlasting rest and peace and bliss. Except the umbrella of the telephone. Although he was one of the first people to own a telephone, Twain was one of its wittiest critics. He once wrote, The human voice carries entirely too far as it is. Here we have been hollowing shut up to our neighbours for centuries. And now you fellows come along and seek to complicate matters. Why is it that new technology is considered to be intrusive? We have seen a backlash towards new technologies again and again throughout history. Writing was once said to be the end of human memory. Television, the end of human interaction. And now Siri leads advertisers right into your living room. Today's digital technologies are far more ubiquitous than the telephone in the 19th century. The Western world depends on internet connectivity to work, rest, and play. But in parliaments, newspaper offices, and ordinary households across the globe, there is mounting concern that our digital age has come at the expense of a human right enshrined long before cyberspace was invented. The right to privacy. I'm Rosario Lebrija Rasbetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a new podcast brought to you by the Pictet Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. In today's episode, we investigate the right to privacy in the age of big data. Mark Zuckerberg has said that nobody wants privacy anymore. Is he right? Is the backlash against digital technology no more substantial than Mark Twain's comic rant against the telephone? Or do we have real cause for concern? Here to help us dissect the subject are the award-winning literary novelist, Joanna Cavena, Imperial College computer scientist, Eve Alexandre Monjoa, and Mary Nemond, Chief Data Officer of the Big Tech Group. Eve Alexander, you're the head of the Computational Privacy Group at Imperial College London, and your expertise in the subject has been sought out by some of the world's most influential leaders and NGOs, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the UN, and the European Commissioner for Competition. Can you explain to our listeners what the main differences are between privacy a century ago and privacy today? I think probably the main difference that I would see is really the impact of technology. I do think that it's interesting that today we tend to present 
new privacy issues uh like you know every every time a new technology is uh introduced and what's quite interesting to me is is basically the way i see it 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 rather tends to be a new technology that basically challenges what was previously uh, informal privacy. Uh, we had privacy. A lot of the things were private before because just technically, uh, physically, we could not record those information and, and that has changed with uh, technology in which today most or at least a lot of our action are leaving uh, a digital trace uh, somewhere. What does your digital fingerprint consist of? I mean, anytime you interact with technology, uh, anytime we, we do something in which technology is involved, I mean, that includes, you know, like apps on your phone, that includes your location, that includes when you pay for something, that includes when you visit a website, that includes when you tap in and tap out, uh, out of the uh, tube system. The modern age is driven by data. Does privacy still matter? Well, I mean, I think privacy uh, privacy is a human right, right? Privacy is something that we, we absolutely uh, need. Uh, that's why from, from our perspective, it, it often tends to be a question of, of how do we find a balance? Uh, how do we how do we ensure that, that we are using data and we're fully using data uh, while being able to preserve people's privacy? Uh, from my perspective, that's one of the biggest uh, misunderstandings at the moment, which tends to be, oh, we should like you know we should we should use data and privacy is preventing us from using it. Uh, I, I do think as privacy as basically providing trust in how the data is being used. Uh, and as you mentioned, right, we're like you know all at home at the moment. There's a lot of cards at the moment for using data, and and maybe we shouldn't care about privacy in in times like this. And and I do think. One, we need we need privacy and we need trust uh, now more than more than ever. But also, there exist a lot of really good ways of uh, using the data while preserving privacy. So really, it does not have to be one or the other. Mary Nemond, you're Pictet's chief data officer, working at the fore of these issues every day. Do you agree with Eve? Is it possible to maintain privacy in this digital age? I think it's really important to fight for privacy in our society and especially being a private bank, actually, because privacy now is really difficult to keep. And I think it will be a big offer in the future, meaning now the new generation is used to have every kind of information on Facebook, on WhatsApp, on everything. But on the other end, they just give a lot of information regarding their privacy meaning where they are, uh, what they like, who are their friends, their, their social connections. I think people start to realize that these sort of free services are not free anymore and that you, you pay uh, the huge price for that, meaning you pay with your privacy. So being able to keep that privacy and offer this kind of service I think will be key in the future, but it will be a real challenge for those who can offer that. And I, I can draw a parallel with another sector of the business, uh, which is the, the news. I met someone from the Ton, which is a key newspaper in Switzerland. And uh, the chief editor told me that after the crisis of privacy we had with Facebook and the fake news 
that we we have many times now people are willing to pay for the the press and for having an independent journalism and articles and i think we will see the same in most sectors that people now uh, are more aware of uh, of that privacy but now this privacy will come with a sort of price because it's really difficult to keep and to propose to the the citizens. For me, it's not anymore uh, the protection of governments, even if the governments have uh, some laws to protect citizens. It's like now, it's more also a question of services you can buy or not. Eve, what happens if this privacy is not respected? What can be abused? I mean, there's a whole range of concern that that could happen. Uh, to be honest, I, I tend to try to stay away from like, you know, nightmare uh, scenarios. Um, I think the, the one that that I, that I did find to be quite striking was a, was a recent study by MIT uh, that was basically looking at Google searches after the Snowden revelation in 2013. Basically, that was a big awakening moment for people to realize that, yes, a lot of what you type online and what you search online is uh, recorded. And then you could see like a, a, a clear drop in the, the research basically showed a very clear drop in, you know, queries that, that could be seen as sensitive from a terrorism law enforcement uh, perspective, but also at the same time, a huge drop in uh, queries related to things that, you know, are absolutely okay, absolutely legal, uh, but people basically did not want other people to know about, like medical queries, for example, saw the same huge drop after the certain revelation. And that is something to me that I find worrisome, right? It's when, when, when the lack of privacy prevents you from, from accessing uh, information, uh, I think that's an issue. We, as a new technology, we have to get used to it and you have to get educated to it. I think the, the worst part with it is that most of the people, they don't know exactly what type of information they give by using technology and they don't protect themselves. They don't know how to turn off on their mobile phone the location site. They don't know uh, what information they give to Facebook. They don't know uh, just having a sort of fidelity card in the shop. They don't know that behind that, the, the shop is using their, their information. And I think it's where you need education of the people and also awareness and protection. Having someone who can protect your key information is really important. Especially, for instance, all the free services you, you may have uh, with the fintech or, or with the startup. It's like it's free. So people go to there, but actually it's not free because they pay with their data and with their privacy information. And I think this is where we shouldn't be afraid of that, but uh, we should be conscious of uh, what we give and that the free element and the paying element are different than before. Joanna Cavena. Your new novel, Zed, is a dystopian satire of privacy during the informational age. How did you approach this theme? And where do you stand on the balance between innovation and the right to privacy? I thought it was really interesting that historically, as Eve's saying, we've never had the capacity to watch people to such an extent in terms of mass surveillance. And I thought that was such a fascinating aspect. And you, you asked Eve the question of how has privacy changed in 100 years? And you think about that famous metaphor, the Jeremy Bentham panopticon metaphor of the late 18th century. 
And it now seems incredibly archaic, the idea you'd have one person and this kind of limited environment with people in their cells um, and this person with the power of mind over mind. The kind of suggestion is the same that, as Eve was saying, once people know they're being watched, they change their behavior. So about the Google searches, people now know that they are public, so they alter what they're searching for. That's exactly the same as what Bentham was talking about. But the scale is immense. And that's the huge, huge difference. And we lead into, as Eve's mentioned, questions of trust. And it's really about power and who we trust to have that power. And so you get into a question. Last year, for example, we had two anniversaries. We had the 30-year anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And we also had the 70-year anniversary of the death of George Orwell. And the two felt very intertwined in relation to this question, thinking about it in a cultural, novelistic and also a political sense. Because when Orwell's book was published, you always get those critics who talk about whether novels are realistic or not. That's a strange question to ask, an unreal form. But they suggested that Orwell's world was not realistic because in order for it to work, you'd need half the population spying on the other half. When the Berlin Wall came down, it was revealed through the brave action of a citizen's movement to prevent the destruction of the Stasi files that a third of the population had been spying on two thirds. So the idea, of course, that Orwell's unreal world was unrealistic was sadly debunked. What we now have is that power in a tiny, that you could potentially have one person who can see billions or one government that can see everything in theory, in terms of these data sets. And I think we should turn to what they actually tell us about people. That's something I'm really interested to hear more from Eve about, what they really do tell us and whether they tell us about people's very intimate lives. But that's a slightly separate question at the moment. So the question is really, who do we trust to have that power? Do we trust people to sell it? Do we want big corporations, as we've had so far, to have the power to collect it without regulation and to flog it like oil or gold as a huge commodity? so far unregulated. With this, as you said, Ros, this kind of notion that if we're progressives, we should want the tech to have every opportunity available. And that's been a big kind of sell of those companies, a big propaganda aspect, really, to tell us that we don't want to be Luddites by questioning this. But actually, that's not inevitable. Just because you can build a building, you don't have to build a panopticon. So it's not an inevitable consequence. I absolutely agree. I do think that's pretty much where I think we stand. Is, is, uh, there, there is a huge potential for good. Uh, but, but yes, there is a question of who has access to which piece of information. How is this information being used? And how do we make sure that... Uh, to me, uh, the individual is is the one who is ultimately uh, in control. Uh, and I do think that this is a fairly strong underlying trend in uh, data protection laws uh, towards more control for the individual, towards the individual uh, being in control of his or her data, the way it is uh, being uh, used, uh, including being able to, to revoke uh, that, that access. So I think that is that is an, an absolutely essential part. Perhaps the first and most famous panic over a new technology comes from classical Greece. Socrates believed that the development of writing would mean the end of human memory. In Plato's Phaedrus, Socrates recounts the story of the Egyptian god Theut, who offered King Themis the gift of his new discovery, letters. 
Seut promised that his gift would bring greater memory and wisdom to the people of Egypt. But King Thamos did not agree. He told the god, This discovery of yours will create forgetfulness in the learner's soul. It is not an aid to memory, but to reminiscence. And you will give your disciples not truth, but only the semblance of truth. Socrates himself famously wrote nothing down, and we know his thoughts only filtered through the written accounts of his students. In the 21st century, who knows how long our individual digital records will survive in the cloud. One of the reasons big data sets are so useful to technologists is that they can extrapolate from patterns in data to make probable forecasts about the future. Joanna Cavena, in your new novel Zed, this is taken to satirical extremes. Yes, so I was really interested in this old, it's a kind of utopian fantasy of determinism. And I, I it sounds like a slightly weird opening point for a novel, but I was really interested in that, that idea. And we have it in so many kind of mythical systems, in the scientific systems, um, up until the end of the 19th century, which are jolted so enormously by quantum physics and quantum mathematics and further kind of emergence of wild uncertainty and these kind of systems that in a way are so prone to chaos that you can't make predictions, you can't calibrate. And I thought this so interesting because there's this paradox that we all live in, which is that we live in this kind of Pythagorean mathematical utopia, in a sense, which is that world of data, that it kind of takes us all as mathematical propositions, and and it seeks to look at patterns, and then from that to make these predictions about what, you know, how the kind of the movements of the data will emerge. And it can do the most extraordinary things like we're seeing at the moment, where we're all really hoping it will work with these predictions that are, you know, our scientists are making about the movements of patients in and out of hospitals and surge capacity. We really want that to work. And it's kind of always confronted in the in the biological world, you know, kind of in, if you like, in gene science, in the, you know, in the kind of uh, in terms of humans in their lives, it's always combated by this complete indeterminacy, by this unpredictability, by the characters of humans and by the characters of everything within the world, really, this kind of strange prospect that everything will suddenly do something unexpected and unpredicted. And so that was the tension I was dealing with in my kind of other world. There's a imaginary tech company called Beetle, which has created this perfect life chain, which is meant to be able to predict everything for all people. And you can run it, you can predict crimes, you can even arrest people on the basis of a pre-crime. You can run your whole society through these predictions, and it has very virtuous intentions. But at the beginning of my book, it's all run off track by something totally unexpected. A perfectly innocuous citizen suddenly murders his entire family, and no one knows why, and it hasn't been predicted by this life chain. And I wanted to look at that the way that the, the reality, as we've seen recently, has the power to drastically surprise us and become completely unexpected and with way beyond the parameters of these optimistic systems that we've created. So that was the kind of basis. And as you talk about free will, that's really the fundamentals that within that system. Free will is always the kind of spanner in the works for the determinist system. In the novel you write, there are also existential choices reconditioning choices, political choices, 
How can we persuade people not to vote the wrong way in elections? And so on. Here, obviously, you're writing about free will in a fictitious dystopia. But haven't we seen hints of this manipulation of data today? Yes, we have. We've seen lots and lots of attempts. The most obvious recently is the Cambridge Analytica scandal. These huge attempts to manipulate, to nudge. There's all sorts of verbs that apply to urge. And obviously this works in an advertising context. There's this idea that, as Google have said, there's an automagical property to these predictions. Larry Page has said, we know what you want before you want it. And that's if you get all these masses and masses of data, you can you can kind of imagine that there's a next possibility, which is you can urge people towards what's best for society or what's best for the people who are paying you to urge them or what's you know best for you individually if you're the person who's taking control of the whole thing. So that's what I was looking at. Even really small things, no? When you go on a website and you accept these cookies or you can't even read the page. Yes, that's right. So you basically that's a choice that isn't really a choice. You can either subscribe to the entire rule system or you can not play. And I think when Eve's talking about it, it's very important that that's a really good example of the way that the whole thing is stacked against the individual. They have no choice at that moment. They can either opt out. And I was writing about, I had this idea, there'd be people who were called the unverified, who just couldn't participate because they wouldn't play by those rules and therefore they were excluded entirely. A bit like what's happening with ideas of social credit and verified users um, in our kind of real life web around the world that if you're not uh, seen to use the service in, quote, the right way, then you'll become more and more suspicious as a user and you won't get access and so on. And so I was looking at that as well. Um, and as Eve pointed out, people sequester themselves more and more once they see what's going on in that system. They start to remove themselves from it. They don't represent their full characters. They adopt a mask and the real world goes elsewhere. And it's in the gaps, that phrase from Lotman. Its reality is now in the gaps that aren't represented in that numerical system because it's been too manipulative. And one of the things that fascinated me the most about your book is this idea of the virtual real. So you have all these characters that go into office spaces and they have this avatar of themselves that they can set to what they want to look like or the motion they want to have. And there's a parallel here with what we're seeing today in social media, with online personas. Exactly. And that's the real paradox with the web. And you've seen attempts. I mean, if you're really going to be a Pythagorean data utopian like Zuckerberg, like Page, like Bryn, you need all the information if you're really going to make lots and lots of money from ostensibly knowing everything about everyone. And there were lots of attempts to present this dogma of integrity. Um, Zuckerberg said things like, if you have more than oneself, you lack integrity. And this idea that you should just present this unified single self online, which would be much more convenient if we're all being kind of supposedly fully represented. But actually, as you say, of course, you can present a concocted self. You can type in completely fictitious Google searches. You can type in, you know, Google searches in persona. You know, you can text in persona. You can do any number of things to occlude and disguise. Um, you can set up multiple persona online. So there's also that hugely fictitious aspect, which has been the other aspect of the online world, that a lot of it isn't real. And that brings us back to what you were talking about, about manipulation. 
a lot of the manipulations, if you look at work into troll farms by writers like Peter Pomerantsev, these are deliberate attempts to use that, that intangibility of that cyber world where we have no way of ascertaining the veridical nature of a lot of what we're being presented with. It simply exists as this kind of strange, uncorroborated utterance. Eve, what's your view on this? Oh, I think I, I agree. I think the main thing to follow up on this is it's 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 a little bit so interesting because this is something that that a lot of people have been looking at from from a research perspective, right? The extent to which you could protect your privacy by uh, obfuscating, by by lying, by you know voluntarily typing fake uh, searches or voluntarily clicking on ads that you're not interested in, or creating two different profiles, two different personas, and 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 switch back and forth between between one and the other. And I very much see this as you know a strong manifestation of the need for privacy. Yet, what I'm worried about is is that from a technical perspective, it is uh, often not working. It's there's a lot of things that you know one might think of uh, to, to do as an individual to try to, to preserve uh, that privacy, to try to fool the algorithms. Unfortunately, a lot of the time it does not work. Uh, there's quite a lot of, of data being recorded to, you know, match profiles. There's algorithm to, to match across devices. Uh, there are, you know, algorithm to, to denoise and, and, and spot like, you know, fake uh, queries. Uh, people have been proposing, you know, software basically that would type, you know, like fake searches in Google so that Google would would not know what you're actually interested in. The issue with these is, unfortunately, most of the time they do not work. And I find this slightly worrisome. Uh, first, uh, that that you know, like we we have so little control that that people actually have to resort to techniques like this, and second, uh, the, the the fake, uh, the false sense of uh, security or privacy that those techniques are uh, giving you, that you do think that this is this is working, you do think that this is private, you do think that those are like you know two different personas. Uh, while in fact, very often the, the technology and the data allows you to to reconcile those, to to denoise those queries, or to or to reconcile uh, those profiles. In the 15th century, while exiled from Germany and France, Johannes Gutenberg developed a device that allowed for the mass production of newspapers, books, and pamphlets. The Gutenberg Press revolutionized the way information was spread. By encouraging the translation and mass distribution of the Bible, which had until then only been produced in Latin by the Catholic Church, the printing press contributed to a religious schism which changed the history not only of Europe, but the world. Today, the Internet echoes the Gutenberg Press by democratizing knowledge and communication, with consequences that are no less frightening to our established authorities. Mary Nemunj, what can you tell us about how the financial industry has been changed by big data and machine learning technologies? 
the way they change banking is more that they provide additional insight to investors. Meaning before, an investor is really someone who knows really well uh, the market. Uh, but as any human being, uh, we all have bias. So you can be the best investor. It's like you, you read a lot of information and you have this sort of uh, guesstimate on where the market will go. Now with the, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, you can have the machine helping you in your decision. So the way we are doing investment is like we strongly believe in our investor because I think the machine today cannot predict everything. But having artificial intelligence models close to your investor, it gives some additional insight. And maybe, I mean, the human being can read some few pages only per day, but a machine can read everything. And then see alerts and, uh, and having some signal in what's happening in the market. So giving some additional signal to investor brings more value to them. It's like you're being helping by the machine, actually. I've heard you say that a 200-year-old business like Big Tech can actually reinvent itself with data. What brought you to that conclusion? Actually, because what's interesting with, with Big Tech is that it's a really whole company and uh, it's also always adapting to how the business is going, the new invention. And as you were mentioning later, it's like technology is not something totally different today. It's more that the way uh, the possibilities are going. So it's like we're involving with the time and uh, with the new way of doing business. And I think PICTE is really representative of that. So we keep our DNA of serving our clients with a really uh, high standard and with a lot of privacy. But on the other end, we want to take the best of the technology. And today, the best of the technology we see is within data and all the new artificial intelligence models that can support our investment team and also bankers. In these ethical terms you're speaking of, how can corporations like banks use data without abusing the individual? I think here it's really what can differentiate banks, actually, because it's going back to the trust notion. It's like it's really your DNA as a bank and what you want to provide to your client. In the case of PICTE, actually, before each uh, data science analytics we have an ethic committee and uh, we involve some people from our data committee. And uh, we have a strong partnership with our chief information and security officer and also our data protection officer. So it's like before each analysis we, we want to do, we really wonder if it's something that will bring value to our clients, that will bring value to our investment team, or if it's something that could have an impact on our reputation or could have an impact of privacy or something like that and could destroy value, actually. And it's really important to have that thinking before starting anything, even uh, before giving access to the data, to the, before, to the data scientist. So having that process strongly in place, actually, it's a real guarantee to be sure that uh, you keep the control of what you are doing. How do you prevent the kinds of problems faced by the characters in Joanna's books, where an algorithm can make a predictive error that has a disastrous impact? 
if we run into a mistake, it's like before communicating any results of an analysis and uh, we always involve the people. I think this is where uh, there is, I, I really like the, the Picte approach. It's like, it's not the machine who give directly the result to the client, for instance. We don't have any uh, robot advisors or it's not the machine going directly to the public. So it's, we have always a human, a human gate, meaning that uh, before starting an analysis, we have a human gate. And after relieving an analysis, we have a human gate. So we always keep the decision to human. It's like, okay, the machine say that result. It's against what, what we were thinking or it's against what we predict before. So how can we uh, interpret that result? And is it something we would like to continue or not? Is it something we would like to communicate or not? And how can we adapt with that result? I think it's key to, to have those gates in place. Otherwise, uh, there is a huge risk, actually. In your opinion, do the benefits of quantitative data outweigh the costs of a dystopian society completely led by machines. Huh, I, I think I think the truth is really in between. Actually, it's like we will need data. I think now data is everywhere in our world, and I think it really helps us to take better decisions. But on the other hand, I think we we need to keep the control actually, and not let the machine decide everything. Because you have to remember that it's human who parameter the machine. And so it's really important that you keep the control of that and you know what are parameters in the, in those machines and who did that and for what purpose. At the end of the day, there is always someone who uses your data for something. So it's really important to understand why and to be able to continue to do that choice, actually, to give the data or not and to protect your privacy. To end, I wanted to come back to your book, Joe. A world where we can predict everything with data. And one of your characters asks themselves, what's the point of living? Eve, you're an expert in the analysis of big data. Should we be worried about machine learning becoming so advanced it undermines our sense of purpose in life? I think basically what's quite interesting is I'm actually fairly optimistic here. Uh, I am extremely interested in questions of data control and ultimately freedom. When it comes to prediction, having worked with a lot of those algorithms, I'm, I'm actually not too worried, to be honest. I think they're, you know, they're, they're good at spotting patterns. Uh, they're, they're impressively good sometimes. Uh, but I'm I'm not too worried that we're getting anywhere close, uh, like you know, any kind of full prediction of how things are gonna are gonna turn out. I think they're they're very good at at learning very well defined patterns, and that is fantastic, impressive, scary, and but but we're very very far from from like you know uh, predicting into into the future. So I think that's something that I'm, you know, fairly, fairly optimistic uh, on. So that's like the Aleph proposition. There's a short story by Borges about the Aleph. And we're in a kind of tech Aleph. And he finds the Aleph, this is this sphere of absolute, beautiful, iridescent brilliance in which you can see everything. You can see all things, all realities, everything in the world, every human, every mind. 
and our narrator, who's a vainglorious, selfish little novelist called Borges, um, one of Borges's many personae, goes and finds this Aleph. And once he looks into it and sees all things, he finds he's incredibly demoralized and bored. And he realizes that nothing will ever surprise him again and he'll never be interested again because he's seen all things and he has to somehow face this realization. Then like a selfish novelist, he's really worried about how this will affect his writing. So he gets stressed about that. But I think that question, it's, it's kind of like the Palantir question in Tolkien. There's an incredible severity and isolation and strangeness about the person who knows all things. And there's, an incredible power and beauty to uncertainty in many cases. And yet some uncertain events, as we've seen, can be catastrophic. So there's always going to be this urge to try to predict, to try to find before it happens. We'll always have our attempts at precog, soothsaying, um, you know, predictive algorithms. We'll always try to do that. It's a complete human um, inevitable process. And yet will be multiply thwarted at every turn. And there's a kind of beauty and terror in that, depending on the outcomes. Thanks to all our guests on this episode of Founding Conversation. Joanna Cavena, Eve Alexandre Monjoie, and Mary Nemond. Joanna's novel Zed is out now. This series is brought to you by the Picta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How-To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.